If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Paul's letter to Titus, one of his pastoral epistles. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would unstop our deaf ears that we could hear, unblind our blind eyes so that we could see the truth and the beauty of your word. Indeed, Father, as we just sang, would you grant us grace to read and mark your holy word, its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you may know this story about the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers, Vince Lombardi, whose team in the 1960s won Super Bowl after Super Bowl after Super Bowl. They were dominant. They were almost invincible. They set the standard. And the story goes, and the legend lives, that every year at the beginning of spring practice, even coming off of a Super Bowl win, Coach Lombardi would gather his team, his team of veterans and rookies, his team that maybe can still think back to that Super Bowl victory. And he would gather his team around and he would say, boys, this is a football. He took them back to basics. He took them back to the beginning This is a football, and we are going to learn and improve and grow in our ability to play football. And indeed, I would think a good coach would want his players to love the game. It's important to get back to the basics. It's important to be reoriented. Life is coming at all of us a thousand miles an hour in 360 degrees of direction. It is easy to get discouraged and disoriented, um, to, to see our lives almost dissipated with just the amount of things going on. And so we, we, we forget the basics. We forget what's important. And today we're going to go back to the basics. Back to the basics of Christianity. Back to the basics of the life and ministry of the church. Inward with one another and outward to the community. In our two-week mini-series, What's in a Name? Now, I hope you read the email that went out on Friday preparing for worship because the church quote of the week was a long one. Uh, It was there on purpose and I hope if you haven't already read it, you go back and read it. It's from Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, especially verse 3. And Martin Luther says this, these two terms, and that is grace and peace, constitute Christianity. Really? Is that exaggeration? Is that over the top? Is that hyperbole? 
Could you or I make that same statement and claim that grace and peace constitute Christianity? Well, what does constitute mean? A couple of different directions. It can mean to establish, to create, to organize. In other words, it gets it going. It can also mean to comprise, to compose, to represent. I always like looking at the antonyms, you know, not the synonyms alone, but the antonyms. And the, the leading antonym to constitute was disband. Disband. And so without grace and peace, Luther is saying Christianity is disbanded. It goes away. It's no longer there. This week, we're going to look at grace. Grace has appeared. And next week, we're going to look at peace. Peace has arrived. And this is how, of course, Paul starts and finishes his letters. The book ends, in fact, of Ephesians. Uh, grace and peace. And it ends with peace and grace. And when the church didn't exist, but it was in the glimmer of of some eyes. It was a Bible study that met at our home. And the first scripture study that we did was Ephesians. We wanted to see what God has to say about the church. Paul begins and ends Ephesians with grace and peace. Paul is going to use those two words to express the relationship of, in one sense, the old covenant and the new covenant. Uh, along the lines of, of, of peace is, is coming in from the Hebrew shalom translated and it comes in as erene and then grace, charis. And it's bringing together kind of Jew and Gentile in Paul's even use of those words. And as he uses that, not only at the beginning of every one of his letters and almost at the end of every one of his letters, he, he's using it to talk about sort of the cause and effect of the gospel. In other words, because grace has appeared, peace has arrived. Now, when you hear these two words, grace and peace, do you think that describes our society today in 2021? Is our neighborhood, or our schools, our businesses, is our political engagement, is our civic life one that is gracious and peaceful? I think we would all conclude absolutely not at the moment, but that's nothing new. Of course, even in the time that these were written, it was a rough Society, a rough world. Now, would these two terms, they don't describe maybe our society, but would they describe your life today, right now, this morning? Gracious and peaceful. This church was deliberately named grace and peace. It wasn't pulled out of a hat. It wasn't a lottery. It was deliberately named to serve as both an anchor holding the church to the historic Christian gospel, as well as to serve as an engine moving the church forward in ministry. The name of the church, by God's kindness, will hold the church to the truth, but it will also help the church 
live out and move the truth toward one another and toward the community. It's the grace and peace of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is good news, not good advice. Every other religion you can put under the category of advice. Only Christianity can you put under the category news. Because before the gospel calls you to do something, it announces what God has already done. Every other religion in one way or another reverses that. It puts the imperative of what people are to do before the indicative of what whatever deity has done. The gospel is good news. And you and I and this church, we don't get beyond the gospel, but rather we go deeper into it. We never mature beyond the gospel We never grow beyond our need to be both humbled and built up by the gospel. As someone has rightly said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's rather the A to Z of Christianity. We don't get beyond the gospel. We rather grow deeper into it. And at the heart of the good news, at the heart of the gospel is grace And so having a right understanding of grace is absolutely essential to being able to respond and to continue to respond well to the news. So it wasn't just Martin Luther who was concerned in a good way about grace and peace. It wasn't just Luther who thought that grace was one component of Christianity. Why does grace matter? Well, it mattered to Paul, right? We read in Acts 20, 24, when we studied Acts, Paul writes, but I do not count my life of any value nor is precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. Well, what was the ministry that Paul received from the Lord Jesus? What was the ministry that caused Paul to travel and preach and promote and suffer? What was it that animated Paul, that drove him? What was his calling? Well, he continues in verse 24. To testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Here, Paul is saying in one sense, the gospel of grace. At other times, we'll see next week, especially he'll speak of the gospel of peace. Now, there are several common but wrong views of grace. And and remember, and I have to tell myself this, otherwise I get too discouraged. Abuse of something does not negate its proper use, right? In other words, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because something is abused doesn't mean there's not a proper use. And so here are three common wrong views of grace. First, grace fills in the gap. It makes up what we lack. In other words, we do our part and then God does his part. That's a common view of what grace is. Another common view is grace gives you a second chance. You know, it's the police officer that... um, pulls you over for speeding and he 
ends up not giving you a ticket and you say, okay, from now on, I'm not going to speed. In other words, this wrong understanding is like people thinking that they have a second chance to save themselves by what they do. And another common wrong view of grace is that somehow grace leads to indifference at best or hostility at worst to the law of God or to obedience in the life of a Christian. For those of you in the adult Sunday school class may remember from lesson five where Ferguson says this, and it's a great summary, the gospel grammar teaches us that his grace creates a real love for and obedience to the law. Indeed, Horatius Bonar, in his book, God's Way of Holiness, writes these words, a forgiven man is the true worker, the true lawkeeper. In other words, it's a forgiven man who's had an encounter with the grace of God. Now, why is this so important? Why are we coming back to this again? Can't we just move on and beyond this? No. Why is this so important? Because if we get grace wrong, we get the gospel wrong. For grace, as we've already seen, is at the heart of the gospel. And if you get the gospel, that is the central message of Christianity wrong, you get Jesus wrong. You don't understand him. You don't know him. You're not able to follow him, nor do you even have a desire to follow him. Today, we're going to take a look at a passage from one of Paul's pastoral letters. Titus 2, 11 through 14 is one of the most, if not the most, comprehensive descriptions of grace in all of Scripture. Join with me as I read verses 11 through 14 of chapter 2 of Paul's letter to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Well, thus far, we've already spent a moment considering why grace matters. Our text will help us gain a right view, a true understanding of grace. And let's start, first of all, with what grace does. What grace does. Now, Paul leaves Titus back in Crete to continue a ministry that he began and one of the tasks um, Paul does is to, to raise up elders to, to, to spiritually govern and lead the church. But the church in Corinth, excuse me, in Crete, an island in the Mediterranean, south of Greece, um, is, um, is, uh, is plagued with a couple of problems that I think plagues in one way or another every church back then and today. And those two problems are license and legalism. In other words, not caring at all about God's law or commands or then caring in one sense too much by adding to it, creating um, 
rules and regulations that are actually easier to obey, to obey than God's law itself. But the solution that Paul has for both license and legalism is the gospel for both. The gospel rightly understood and rightly applied. The gospel applied, understood and applied, will produce joyful, generous, holy living. And we see that in many of Paul's letters. So let's look, first of all, what grace does. Grace saves. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Well, in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, Paul has presented teaching on how to live the Christian life. And now he comes with the why. Here is the scriptural doctrine to back up and support the ethical demands. We see it's a past action. It has appeared. God intervened in history. It's the incarnation. In December, we will reflect once again on the fact that but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. He speaks of the grace of God having appeared. The grace of God, a, a concise statement to sum up all of God's actions on our behalf. And what do we mean by grace? Well, there are several senses, of course, in scripture, but here it is. God's unmerited favor given to those who deserve his wrath. Um, many of you have heard that acronym that says grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And that's kind of we nod our heads and we think, ah, yeah, maybe I learned that in fourth grade or sixth grade. But you know what? It's really true. God's riches, the riches of his grace that were given to us at the expense of Jesus Christ. It's true. In his preface to By Grace Alone, How the Grace of God Amazes Me, Sinclair Ferguson, who is teaching our adult Sunday school class, writes this, being amazed by God's grace is a sign of spiritual vitality. It's a litmus test of how firm and real is our grasp of the Christian gospel and how close is our walk with Jesus Christ. The growing Christian finds that the grace of God astonishes and amazes. Yet we frequently take the grace of God for granted. We think, well, of course God is gracious or of course we deserve his grace. After all, are we not his people? Now we may never say these things, but when we think like this, the grace of God ceases to be amazing. Sadly, it also ceases to be grace. What a danger. What a danger. Grace rolls off of our lips. But the very thought of God's grace should stop us in our tracks. Astonishment, amazement. Is it a litmus test? If it is, what's it reveal about your life right now? We read that this salvation that's come, this grace of God that's appeared is bringing salvation for all people. Aha, universalism. 
everyone saved. No, of course, scripture and so many other areas say that is not the case. What does it mean? Well, just look at the context of Titus itself. It's for all kinds of people, old, young, men, women, Jew, Gentile, all kinds of people. And what effect did this appearance of grace have? Well, it's right before us. It brings salvation. But what else does this grace of God do? Well, we see in verse 12 that grace trains. It not only saves, but it trains. And here, saving grace becomes training grace, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, we went from past action to present action, training in process right now. Some translations say teaching, but it's more than instruction. It's both instruction and encouragement. It's correction and it's discipline. I used to have to deal with this um, part of the Navy called the Navy uh, uh, Commander Naval Education and Training. I think that captures it well. This grace educates us. This grace trains us. And it trains us, it teaches us in two directions. A negative to say no and a positive to say yes. Regarding ungodliness, grace trains us to say no. To say no to impiety, to disregarding God, to ignoring God, to not taking God to account. I mean, in one sense, ungodliness is not just like clearly evil things. Ungodliness is just not taking God into account at all. Living as a practical atheist. And it's a good thing our lives are better evaluated on a videotape than a snapshot, isn't it? Because who of us at one time or another wouldn't clearly lead an ungodly life, even if it was just the matter of ignoring God? Also, no, not only to ungodliness, but worldly passions. You see, the world has standards it sets for the world and 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 it, it says if you're significant you want if you want success then achieve these standards pursue pleasure possessions and prominence but Paul is telling Titus and and thus to all the church there in Crete and to us today that that grace says no you've got to have a decisive break with worldly passions. In fact, as we will see in a few moment, minutes, how grace does that. So not only does it say no, but grace trains to say yes, to say yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. If ungodliness is not taking God into account, then godliness is first and foremost taking God into account at the center of your life. In three relationships, commentators have seen self-controlled related to you, upright related to other people, and godly, of course, related to God. Again, 
Ferguson, what he said in lesson five of the Sermon on the Mount, the gospel grammar teaches us that his grace creates in us a real love for and obedience to the law. The law that says, say no to this and say yes to that. And obedience may look like saying no to certain things and saying yes to certain things. And when is this done? In the present age. Training us, again, in the present. And then it concludes, in the present age. It's ongoing. It's right here, right now. So grace saves, grace trains, and thirdly, grace orients. And we see that in verse 13, the first part. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, our present action is also not only being trained, but we are waiting. And our waiting is really focused on a future Event. We are moving here from the appearing of grace to the appearing of glory. Grace saves, grace trains, and grace orients us to the future. It's set, it, orienting, some of you have been camping, and you love getting out on a hike and using a compass. And the very word orienteering means to cause or face or point toward the east, to set right by adjusting to facts or principles. Now in orienteering, you use a, use a, a compass to navigate, to find your direction, and here it's God's word. Speaking of grace, that's orienting us to the future. It reminds us here that Jesus appeared in humility, but he will reappear in glory. You see, once again, in this passage, the New Testament authors, Paul here and Peter elsewhere, is saying that Jesus Christ is the supreme object of the Christian hope. The, the Christian hope is not that we will finally one day get it all together or that finally one day all our work is done. No, the hope for the believer is that Christ will come again that he will return. Isn't that interesting? The end of the Bible, the end of the canon, toward the very end of Revelation, come, Lord Jesus. Just as the Old Testament leaned forward to the coming, the first advent of Jesus, the, the New Testament leans forward to the second advent of Jesus. And I believe it ends also, the grace be with you. How appropriate. How appropriate. So we've seen that grace saves, grace trains, and grace orients us. And grace orients us first and foremost and primarily to a person. And so we have to look now at who grace is. Grace is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, grace is not an abstract Theory. It's not a concept. It's not some kind of academic theological construction. It's not even copyrighted or trademarked by any reformed seminary or, or organization. Rather, grace is a person. Grace is a person. 
Ferguson concludes his preface to that book by grace alone, how the grace of God amazes me with these words. Grace is not a thing. It is not a substance that can be measured or a commodity to be distributed. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In essence, it is Jesus himself. And he says pretty much the same thing in an interview with Ligonier Ministries, which is the something to think about, quote, at the end of the order of worship. I encourage you to to read that and begin to think more and more that grace indeed is a person. Indeed, as we heard from our Old Testament reading, there was the future appearing of a person who would be a great light. This child would be born, this son would be given. It's about a person. And we saw in our New Testament reading from John 1 that that, that grace has appeared visibly in Jesus, full of grace and truth. His miraculous birth, his perfect life, his sinatoning death, his victorious resurrection. And look how Paul describes Jesus, our great God and Savior. If you're looking for a passage in the Bible that speaks of Jesus being human and divine, Here's a good one to go to. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And who is this great God and Savior? This one affirmation in particular of the divinity of Jesus. Who is this great God and Savior? Well, it's the one who we see gave himself. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness. He gave himself. Remember, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself, right? To give himself as a ransom for many. And why did Jesus give himself? Well, our text says two reasons. One, to redeem us. And here the focus is on the individual, not to just forgive us. We see that elsewhere, but to redeem us. Remember earlier, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus, why? To redeem us. Here are clear echoes of the Old Testament scriptures, in particular the language of the Exodus, that God would rescue his people. God would uh, redeem his people. They would be released from slavery and bondage. But here, what are they redeemed from, rescued from, from all lawlessness? I don't think they do this anymore, but growing up, I used to go into the um, post office and you'd see the wanted pictures, right? Wanted, armed robbery, wanted, murder, wanted, fraud. So it's not just, just activities that would get your photo up in a post office, no. But things like grumbling, gossip, not just the actual physical act of adultery, but adultery in the terms of looking at people as objects of your lust. Not just necessarily stealing where you go in and take something from someone, but you're living with the financial bottom line controlling everything. And that's why Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that we're looking at now is so devastating. Because it goes beyond the outward surface 
lawlessness, which of course is lawlessness. It goes down to the heart of lawlessness. The rebellious heart, the lustful, greedy, angry heart. Second, not only to redeem us, but also to purify for himself a people. And here the emphasis is is the corporate emphasis, moving from the individual to the church, to redeem us and to purify us. And Paul says this, for himself a people for his own possession, his own people who belong to Jesus. I think it's in the Trinity hymnal. I belong to Jesus. I belong to Jesus. Um, Our Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one, I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong. And English can't really capture it. It, it, it. Once you were not a people, Peter says in his first letter, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And who are people who belong to Jesus? Well, we see this other description. They're zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. And what's the motivation? The motivation, of course, is the grace of God in salvation and the fact that because of that, we belong to Jesus. And if you read Titus closely and carefully, you will see that it's all about a couple of things. Grace and the good works that flow from a life that's being transformed by God's grace. So we need to stop and ask ourselves a question related to this this last statement. People who are zealous for good works. Let's ask ourselves, we're all eager to do something, right? I mean, everything in life is a decision, is, is a matter of choices, isn't it? What are you eager to do? What are you, uh, what can't you wait to do? What are you enthusiastic about? You see, quiet personalities and outgoing personalities, the enthusiasm and the eagerness may look different, but there's still eagerness and enthusiasm. So what are you eager to do? What are you enthusiastic about? Paul is saying grace trains us to be eager. Grace trains us to be enthusiastic. I mean, would would someone call you a zealot? Maybe a zealot about your personal view on something? A zealot for your personal interpretation and understanding of something? I, I think we can all be zealous to elevate our personal opinion to a standard for other people, can't we? But here, the question is, would someone call you a zealot for good works? I mean, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is great, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But if you stop reading at verse 9, we lose so much because verse 10 says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Look at Titus 3, just a few verses down. 
Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Grace leads to good works. What God has joined together then We are called not to tear apart, not to separate. Now, in looking ahead to the future, Paul looks back at this historic act of redemption. He's looking back to Christ's life and death for us, doing for us what we could not do ourselves. We could not do for ourselves. But have you noticed in this short passage that we've been reading and thinking about. Have you noticed that it's really bracketed by two advents, the first and second comings of Jesus? You see, the grace of God, what, has appeared, and then the appearing, the coming appearing. Here in four short verses are the two endpoints of the Christian era. In fact, John Stott in his commentary writes this, the best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically, namely to look in opposite directions at the same time. Hey kids, can you look forward and backward at the same time? No, it's it's not possible, right? Not possible physically, but here God's word is calling us to do spiritually what we can't do physically. In other words, in order to live the Christian life now, in the present, we must simultaneously look back on the incarnation and look forward to the consummation. We, we live today, I know it sounds like a, a what is that, a meme? Or um, it sounds like a tr- little trivial expression, but we really do live today in light of yesterday and tomorrow. We are living in the times between, in other words, the already and the not yet. So we've seen that grace saves from death to life and that grace trains from a newborn life to a growing life, a more mature life. And grace orients us from a present life on earth to a future life in heaven, from suffering to glory. But most important, grace orients us to a person. A person who showed up and got to work. And so let's now consider how grace works. And we've got to look to the life and ministry of Jesus. What did Jesus come to do? Well, we see he came to give himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. We see that, I believe, earlier. Oh yeah, in Luke, excuse me, earlier in Titus. Remember, Jesus says that he's been sent to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus had an understanding of what he came to do and he said that he came to seek and to save the lost. We heard earlier that Paul wrote Timothy that Jesus came to save sinners. And in the Gospels, as we saw when we went through Mark, 
We see change going on around Jesus all the time, right? Dead people came back to life. Crippled people, paralyzed people became able to walk. There was always change going on around Jesus. And it's so simple, right? So obvious. But in this Christian subculture that many of us live in, it it often points us to seek the one and done, the, the quick fix, the pat answer. I mean, you've heard it from friends. You've probably said it yourself. Just do this. Just do that. Just pray more. Just read your Bible more. I mean, I remember hearing the story of, of, of someone who was going through a really difficult time and the counsel, when he reached out to someone, the counsel was, well, you probably didn't read the Bible enough. That may be true, but that's not how you encourage someone who's hurting at that moment. Just do this, just do that. Are, are you kidding? Any of you guys been battling a besetting sin? Just do this, just do that. It, 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 change is difficult. It, it, it's, it, it involves putting things to death. It's transformation, it's blood, it's sweat, it's tears. You know, there is one quick fix. I, I stand corrected. There is a quick fix to the difficulty of the Christian life. There is a quick fix to the struggle and the battle against sin and suffering. There is one quick fix. The return of the Lord. Everything else is a long, slow process in the same direction, following Jesus. And this brings us to the question, well then, how does grace change us? Exactly how does grace train us And that's the focus of this passage. We we know, or at least we should know, that grace saves us. But can we also say with confidence that grace trains us? In other words, how does grace bring about the change? How is grace the fuel for change in our lives? So here's the question. How are you trained by grace? And here's the answer. We're trained by continually going back to the gospel, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. If, if Paul said that that's my calling and that's my ministry to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, he always went back to that. In each and every situation, he kept going back to basics. One way in which to understand and appreciate the gospel is to realize this, that Jesus lived the life that we should live and he also died the death we deserve for the rebellious life that we do live. In other words, Jesus is both substitute and sacrifice. Remember what Paul says to the Corinthian church, for our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And for those of you using the daily Bible studies from Table Talk Magazine earlier this week may remember reading this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty 
might become rich. You see, in the mirror of the gospel that's before us, we recognize that we are more flawed and we are more sinful than we ever dared believe. Yet through the window of the gospel, we also recognize that we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. It's Jack Miller saying, cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. Cheer up. God's grace is a lot bigger than you think it is. Cheer up. So here in his letter to Titus, Paul is making the argument that we obey. We say no, we say yes. Not in order to be accepted or saved by God, but rather we obey because we have already been accepted or saved by God. We obey out of gratitude. That's the Heidelberg Catechism's logic, guilt, grace, and gratitude. And it's radical. It's revolutionary. It's not how business works. It's not how most social relationships among people work. You see, it's the logic of the gospel. The fuel for change is the grace of the gospel itself. You see, grace changes the got to to the get to. You see, if you talk to a, uh, an, an Olympic athlete, they don't so much focus on I've got to train. They focus on I get to train. Because you see, they've been changed at the level of their desires. The gospel changes us, not with outward behavior of lips and hands only. The gospel goes down to the level of our desires. I think the Sermon on the Mount is helping many of us grow in our understanding to remember that outward conformity is so much easier than inward alignment. To the gospel. That's why every version of legalism is so tempting. It's easier. It's easier. And the Sermon on the Mount, as we talked about this morning, is helping us see that when you see obedience goes down to the motives of the heart, all of us have to cry out to God for help. But grace changes us at that level. Our got to becomes over time our get to. So what have we learned as we wrap up from this one long complex sentence in the original language? First, grace appeared in Jesus Christ. Grace, in other words, is personal. You've heard the expression, don't take it personally. Well, when it comes to grace, just as we saw with justification by faith when we were in Galatians, you've got to take it personally. Not only has grace arrived in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but his grace continues to arrive. How? Through the means of grace, the word, the sacraments, and prayer, as the Spirit makes them effective. And grace will indeed arrive in glory when Jesus returns so we've seen grace has past, present, and future dimensions. And therefore, we need to say regularly with the church down through the ages, Christ has died, past. Christ is risen, present. And Christ will come again, 
future. Second, not only did grace appear in Jesus Christ, but grace that has appeared is a robust grace. It's not some kind of legalistic condemning grace whipping you and me into shape through some kind of smiling version of stoicism. Yet, it is an intolerant grace for its grace unto change. And I hope if you haven't been using Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies, one thing that he seems to wind in several times a week is that this grace that appears in Jesus Christ is intolerant grace. It doesn't leave us where we are. It changes us to become more and more like our Heavenly Father, more and more like our Savior, Jesus. And finally, not only is grace appearing in Jesus Christ and grace that appears in Christ is robust and intolerant. But thirdly, grace appeared to change us. It didn't come to make our already good lives just a little bit better. I keep laughing at that old BASF commercial. We don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. No. It's not what grace does. Grace rather appeared to make dead people alive. And it didn't appear so that we could turn inward and somehow look to ourselves and think that we can do it. Grace is not show up in the Nike commercial, just do it. The gospel of the grace of God says you cannot do it. But Christ has done it for you. From beginning to end, salvation is by grace. As Jonah exclaimed, salvation is of the Lord. You see, grace doesn't provide a second chance to do it right from now on, but rather it provides you and me with a new status with God and a new desire and a new ability to no longer live for ourselves but for Him. Only an encounter with the grace of God in Jesus can change us at the level of our desires. Again, grace makes one letter change. Our got to, which for many of us burdens us and weighs us down and is a terrible master, becomes I get to. I've been saved. I've been rescued. I'm alive. God hasn't treated me as my sins deserve. The got to becomes the get to. Let's hear it one more time. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace 
of God made known to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ came to save us, to train us, and to orient us. God's grace, that is, Jesus Christ, comes to you as you are, but he doesn't leave you or me as we are. No, he moves us. He, by the powerful working of his Holy Spirit, transforms us from one degree of glory to another. And the change that his grace brings displays not only the glory of God, but also his goodness to his people, who are conformed slowly but surely more and more into the image of our Savior, and thus we become fitted to be with him and his people for all eternity. So my friends, we as a church and we as individual Christians really need to get back to the basics. This is the Bible. This is God's word. And God's word is the unfolding revelation of the only one who could rescue us from sin and death and restore our broken relationship with our creator, the one true and living God. May God be pleased to enable all of us, young and old, in church for a long time and church for just a short time, all of us. May he enable all of us to know and grow in our understanding of his grace, an appreciation of his grace, a desire to put his grace into practice, that grace which is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. May we indeed all experience more and more the life-transforming power of his grace in our lives and in this church. My friends, the good news for all of us today is that grace has appeared. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this compact, comprehensive, but concise description of grace and its past, present, and future work. We thank you, Father, that we saw in this text the good news that Jesus has come and the good news that he will return to finish and complete what he has begun. Oh, Father, help us to grow more and more to understand the gospel of grace more, to be able to put it into practice in our lives and to, to encourage one another to turn not inward and downward, but rather outward and upward and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.